0: In the name of the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. You may be seated. Freedom. 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 is within the very heartbeat of humanity. There is something deep within each and every one of us that yearns to throw off the shackles, whatever those shackles may be, and for us to breathe in the fresh air of freedom. Well, a couple of months ago, I made a trip to New York, joined by my beautiful daughter, Sarah, and we took the time to see as many of the sites as we could, Penn Station, Broadway, Times Square, the World Trade Memorial, and most significantly, at least for us on that trip, the Statue of Liberty, and Ellis Island, where thousands upon thousands of people made that arduous journey across the great Atlantic Ocean, leaving behind friends, sometimes family, but certainly everything they knew. Why? You know, for the sake of freedom, for the chance to start fresh, for the chance to begin again, looking into the horizons of this new world and there as we stood beneath this statue of liberty, we contemplated the trip our own ancestors made in the early 1900s. The journey to America is personal to our family as it is to many of yours. Yet our cry for freedom runs even deeper than this. Our cry for freedom transcends political, economic, and social circumstances In fact, our cry for freedom is rooted in the very depths of the human condition. The ancient Israelites knew this. Their journey from slavery to freedom in the Exodus narrative, and again in their return from the exile in the Babylonian captivity, well, it certainly involved their political, economic, and social circumstances, but more than that, deeper than that, it had to do with God. They knew that true freedom... True freedom is tied to our relationship with God. And they also knew this significantly. They knew that they were not able to save themselves. That ultimately they had no power within themselves to save themselves. Salvation and therefore freedom would indeed require the help of an outside agent. This is in part what aroused in them what we call a messianic expectation. Someone who was foretold by the prophets who would be sent by God, who could reach down and reach in and save them and deliver them. And to be clear, their understanding was somewhat veiled and fairly incomplete but that actually illustrates the point. They knew they couldn't help themselves, but they didn't fully know what help would look like. Therefore, as we find Jesus teaching in the synagogue this morning, let's be clear, it is no coincidence. It's no accident that Jesus picks out these passages from the prophet Isaiah, and to set the stage for this, I wanna reach back into the sermons that we've preached the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago we visited Jesus at his baptism and I outlined three ideas, three important ideas that his baptism signified. First, what we called a divine invasion. That is God in Christ Jesus is breaking into our world to establish his kingdom. Secondly, an earthly inauguration. That is to say that Jesus' baptism serves as a type of earthly coronation for him to begin his public ministry and thirdly, human identification. By his baptism, Jesus shows us that he is willing to stand in solidarity with us in our state of suffering. And then last week, Father Charles preached about the wedding at Cana. The miracle, as we call it, of turning water into wine. The first of the signs in John's Gospel that Jesus is the one. That he is capable of doing indeed what he proclaims in word. And now we return to the centrality of the word of God spoken. As this sort of cosmic lens, if you will, focuses in on Jesus again, he stands up in the synagogue and the scriptures say that the eyes of all were fixed upon him. Reading from the prophet Isaiah, he declares, listen to these words and not just the words, the implications of the words. Jesus says, The spirit of the Lord is upon me. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. These were words that the Israelites knew very well. Words that served as a healing balm to the Israelites who were held in captivity in Babylon, but words that also ignited in them this passionate anticipation that God would one day finally and fully fulfill what he had longed promised. And as we step back into the scene, maybe we can see Jesus as he rolls back up the scrolls. He hands the scrolls back to the attendants and then he sits down, preparing to teach from a seat of stone as was the custom of the rabbis and then he fixes his eyes upon those who had fixed their eyes upon him and he offers his first public sermon in the Gospel of Luke and he says one thing. Maybe the shortest sermon ever preached. Maybe he can get away with that because he's Jesus. One sentence, today, This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Fulfillment, a word that means to bring to completion or to bring into reality. And now Jesus is saying that God had come in the flesh, in person, to fulfill, to bring to completion and to bring into reality in himself. God has appointed me, God has anointed me to preach the good news, to bring into reality in himself that which our human heart has longed for since the fall of humanity, freedom liberation from the things that keep us in the deepest of bondages, and not the political oppressions that might enslave or impress us, neither the economic or social injustices that might frustrate us, but the spiritual slavery that binds all of human history together, that is the slavery to sin and to death. The Apostle Paul expresses it this way in Romans chapter seven. Listen to these words, is not this our plight? He says, for we know, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, I am sold under the slavery of sin, for even the things I do, I do not fully understand. He continues, for the good that I want to do, I do not do. But the evil I do not want to do, this is what I find myself doing. In fact, he says, I even see another law in me warring against the law of my mind, and it is holding me captive captive to this law of sin which is in my members. And then Paul cries out in ways that I expect each and every one of us have cried out at some point in our lives. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Who will reach down and reach in? Who will come in from the outside and save me and deliver me from this body of death? And he concludes... Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, get this, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, this is what has made me free from sin and death. Of course, Paul is talking about conversion turning away from those things that bind us to sin and death and turning toward the one who gives us this life only by his love, even Jesus Christ. And let me be very clear on this point, my friends. This is not something we can do or achieve on our own. Don't raise your hand, but raise your hand if you've ever been to the doctor. Why do you go? Because you can't fix it. What do we call Jesus? The great physician. What is he doing? He's fixing our souls by saving us from the stronghold of sin and death. Paul even continues in Romans chapter eight in glory. It is by the spirit of God that we are adopted into his family. And this is what allows us to cry out, Abba, Father, as we become his children, and Paul says, if children, then heirs. Don't just hear these words, please. Please translate these words that I'm saying now as your identity as baptized Christians. If children, then heirs of God. And if heirs of God, then co-heirs with Christ. We are adopted by grace into salvation in the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. This comes into us as baptism, and as that happens, he becomes our Father. God becomes our Father, and we become his children. What does that mean? We can call out to him, we can cry out to him at any time, and he will hear us, and he's benevolent, and he's good, and he delights to give us good and perfect gifts, as the scriptures say. And then not just children, but co-heirs, princes. And princes, why do we have fairy tales? And why do we love the fairy tales that speak into those kinds of identities in us? There's something wired in each and every one of us that knows that we want to become more than we are. And in Christ, we are destined to become that. Not just children, but heirs. And if heirs of God, then co-heirs with Christ. So here's another dimension or definition of fulfillment. To fulfill also means to meet the requirements of In other words, Jesus being fully God and fully man is the only one, therefore, who's capable of breaking this bondage to sin and death and to bring us into the fullness of freedom, the only one. People claim that Christianity is exclusive, right? But it's also inclusive by its exclusivity. Who else gave their life on the cross for us Would we dare ever make mockery of that by denying the love, the mercy, and the grace poured out to us in Jesus Christ our Lord? No, we say, that's the way. That's the way to salvation, Christ crucified. This is why Paul says, I resolve to preach nothing except Christ and him crucified. And my friends, pay attention to our Eucharistic liturgy this morning. This is what it says to us every Sunday, that he stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself once for all that by his suffering and death we might be saved and by his resurrection, it continues, he broke the bonds of death, trampling in hell and Satan under his feet, ascending to the Father's right hand in glory. Why? The Eucharist tells us that we might see him face to face. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever even imagine the glory that awaits us? We're not just standing up here preaching doctrine, we're preaching relationship. And a doctrine accompanies that, but the goal is to get to Jesus, to know him, to love him, and to serve him, that we might see him face to face for all of eternity. Let me close here. One reason we're here this morning is that we are staring into the horizons of our future at Christ the Redeemer. Think about it this way. We are standing on the shoulders of 2,000 years of our Christian Witness, and we are standing on the firm foundation that we have laid together for the last 14 years. Can you believe we're almost 15 years old? Right in the throes of our teenage years. Exactly. Soon after this service, we will have our annual parish meeting. In it, we will hear some very good reports and actually some very glowing statistics. Our parish meeting should rightly stir our hearts and inspire our minds to consider how we are the salt and light of the world, to instruct us on how to make disciples of all nations, and to motivate us to become that city on a hill that we've been talking about. But as we do, my friends, I ask that we just keep one thing in mind all of these things, every one of them, every single thing we will say, every single thing we will do comes to us by grace. It's by grace. Paul says that we're saved by grace through faith. Why, to prepare us for the good works that God has in mind for us. These benefits that we have received at Christ the Redeemer are poured out upon us only by the merits and mercies of Jesus himself, who as I said, delights to give us every good and perfect gift for the mission of the gospel. For as he and he alone is the fulfillment of all things in heaven and on earth and the source of our truest freedoms that we desire, let us take our stand and do our part to be more than conquerors for Christ until he brings to completion all things, even in heaven and on earth until that last day when we do see him face to face.